I mean, the desire for revenge, right, is enormously powerful. We also know that acting on the desire for revenge purely to express one's sense of vengeance and hate, right, is not strategic, either on an individual level yeah. or on, a, you know, a broader political level. That ultimately what's going on now has to be looked through the lens of where and how do we want this thing to land up, you know, one month from now six months from now, one year from now, five years, 10 years from now. I mean, that's the obligation of political leadership and military leadership is to think long-term and is to plan what's going on right now. You know, I mean, you know, there's, the, your world's you know, full of historical examples where, you, where you, you try to decimate a group, you know, that, that is just being, you know, doing devastating things and it gets replaced by an even more vicious group. Welcome to this special episode of People Are the Answer. I truly believe that people are the only answer to the world's many problems. I'm Jeffrey M. Zucker, a serial entrepreneur, here to learn how innovators are creating outsized transformational social impact and to shine a light on all the good happening in a world often hyper-focused on the negative. Unfortunately, in today's episode, we really couldn't avoid the negative. Um, I had on my friend, Ethan Nadelman, and you know, when we first scheduled, the hope was for us to really dig into drug policy. You know, he has over 40 years of experience in the space, and I have you know, seven or eight years myself. I've become a bit of a drug policy nerd, and I still hope to do that episode at some point with Ethan where we do a traditional interview and I learn more about how he got into drug policy and what motivated him to do so, although a little bit of that does come up in this episode. But... Uh, Ethan and I, both being Jewish, both having uh, history uh, regarding Israel and things of that nature, the current events going on in the Middle East were at the forefront of our minds, and neither of us felt comfortable really talking about anything else. And so uh, on today's episode, uh, you'll find Ethan Nadelman and I talking about the current situation in Israel. Um, and he has actually tremendous experience in this space you know, spending the first part of his career in Middle Eastern politics, spending the first part of his career in Middle Eastern politics before uh, switching over to drug policy reform work. Um, we talk about a little bit how the motivations intersect, but really just the, the devastation going on, um, how disgusting it is. And we also, you know, which can be controversial at this moment in time, dig into some of the politics surrounding it, how it affects global politics as well. Um, and, you know, I think overall, Ethan has a really incredible perspective, even if it's not one that you share, I think it's worth listening to. And I think one of the biggest takeaways from it was to listen to people that, uh, you may not agree with to read things from all sides. We're currently in a world where we kind of live in our own media bubble, whether it's things that we subscribe to or our social media feeds that are tailored to show us things that we want to see. And Ethan has an interesting perspective, and I think that if the majority of, I think that if the majority of us in the center of politics that really believe in peace for all people in their lives that aren't hurting others, that his message resonates, and uh, I hope that you get as much out of it as I did. And uh, thanks so much for tuning in. Here is Ethan Nadelman talking about the current situation in the Middle East. On people are the answer, Ethan. Uh, thanks so much for joining me here on People Are the Answer. Hey, my pleasure, Jeff. Good to see you again. Yeah, likewise. And you know, as fellow drug policy enthusiasts, and you know, you're someone I thought about when I was creating a show about innovators and social impact. And I've been, you know, looking forward to speaking to you about drug policy. You know, we're both 
very interested and ingrained in it. Um, but I think, you know, we've both decided we'll, we'll get to that either later today or in the future. You know, both of our minds are very clearly focused on the current situation in Israel. You know, we're recording this on uh, Wednesday, October 11th to give some context and, you know, things having started over the weekend. And, you know, I know that we're both thinking about this. We're both Jewish. So I kind of wanted to just kind of, I wanted to understand your current state of mind around this topic and, you know, how you've been dealing with it. Yeah, well, I'll tell you, Jeff, it, it was a, actually, it was, it was perfect. Um, when you sent me the email earlier today and said, how do I feel about talking about what's going on in Israel and Gaza and the Middle East and whatever? And, and, and that is where my head's been as well. And, you know, I haven't been tweeting anything about drug policy for since all this stuff broke out um, there in Israel and Gaza and, and just consuming large amounts of media. But, you know, I, um, I'll tell you, first of all, um, it, it, it's the first time actually being interviewed on about stuff in the Middle East, but it's something it's not just been close to my heart ever since I was a kid, uh, you know, growing up, you know, typical American Jewish kid, you know, in New York suburbs. My dad was a rabbi, you know, I mean, it's been kind of part of my life. But, you know, the thing that a lot of people don't know is that until I started focusing on drug policy in my mid 20s. The focus of my studies was Middle East politics and U.S. foreign policy. And so that began when I was uh, started college at McGill in 1975. I took a course with the, the leading, probably the leading expert in the world on Israeli politics at the time, Michael Breacher. Then I transferred to Harvard, taking courses there. I took a course um, taught by Walid Halidi, who was perhaps the most prominent you know, Palestinian intellectual uh, and historian. Uh, actually, I think he's still alive in his late 90s now. Um, but I took the first class that he taught at Harvard at that time. I wrote my papers and my senior thesis and other things in Middle East politics. I then did my graduate in my graduate work at Harvard. I also focused on Middle East stuff. My first publications were about stuff in the Middle East. And I think I'm pretty sure I taught the first course ever at Harvard on Israel and the Palestinians in the fall of 1982, junior tutorial. So I was deeply immersed in it. But I would also say that I was beginning to really burn out on it at that point in 82. I mean, 82 was a point where, you know, you'd had there'd been the 67 six day war. Then there'd been the Yom Kippur war in 74. Then there'd been the remarkable, you know, Anwar Sadat coming, the president of Egypt coming to Jerusalem, 1977 with, you know, 77 or 78 with Nachum Begin as president, you know, the former right-wing Zionist welcoming the Egyptian leader who had led the war in 1973, the peace between Israel and Egypt, some sense of optimism. And then all that beginning to just kind of flounder with, I think the first intifada or, I think it was back then, in the early 80s. And, and there were two powerful things that happened. I remember in fairly short order in my life back then. One was that there was a Palestinian guy in my class, so, you know, came from an affluent Christian family, you know, in uh, Jerusalem, Bashar Ababa, his name was. We were good friends. We were studying, you know, together for our political theory class. And I remember at one point just saying to him, so Bashar, you know, I mean, can you, I mean, I mean, isn't I mean, I, I, my assumption had been right from the late 70s that the only way this should resolve itself is that you ultimately needed some kind of two state solution in the area, that that's what needed yeah. to happen one way or another. And that was that was going to enhance Israeli security. That was going to be good for the Palestinians. And Bashar surprised me because he was you know part of the elite saying absolutely not. 
never, never would accept that that there could be. This is Palestinian land. And then just shortly thereafter, I was in the Harvard Coop, this big store, and I bump into a buddy of mine from high school. Um, you know, kind of a you know good natured guy, big sense of humor. He's there with his dad. And I said, "Oh, what are you up to?" I hadn't seen him in years. Oh, he just got back from Israel, and I made some comment about you know the extremists each pushing conflict and that. And they look at me like I'm crazy, and they say, "You don't get it. It's like this is Jewish territory, all of it." And, and making the most vicious anti-Arab kind of, you know, I would say racist, except Jews and Arabs are kind of the same race. But I mean, you know, you know, bigoted comments. And I just looked, I said, really? And that sense of the extremism such. And even with Walid Halidi, who had very bravely been the first prominent Palestinian or Arab in the late 70s to step, publish an article in Foreign Affairs magazine, I think in 1978, calling for a two-state solution, which was very brave on his part. And he had the credibility to do it and not be ostracized by the rest of the world. But even he and his class would have a hard time kind of putting themselves in the shoes of a, of a Jew. Or an Israeli, yeah. what have you, you know, that kind of crucial empathic element you need if you want to be a committed teacher or what have you. So I kind of was looking for something else to do. And, you know, friends of mine said, Ethan, you've always been interested in drugs and always trying to get everybody high. And you're interested in the deviant side of things. And the drug war had not quite launched in 1982-83. And so I moved into that area. Um, and I kind of wrote a kind of farewell op-ed piece, you know, very bleak about the future of the Middle East and published it in the Boston Globe, Miami Herald, 1984, and basically say goodbye to that stuff. But it was also that it was so, I mean, the drug issue has been personal in, in various yeah. ways, but that issue around the Arab-Israeli conflict is so deeply personal. I realized that while on the one hand, I wanted my intellectual life to be connected to my personal and emotional life as well, but that the situation in the Middle East felt so deep and so hard that I didn't want to engage. Plus, as an American Jew, I didn't really see how I could play a big a role. I mean, he's trying to change this. I mean, you had Henry Kissinger yeah. who had played his own particular monumental role in the 73 war. And you had Dennis Ross, the famous American diplomat who's played a key role for many decades in this stuff. But it wasn't as if one could really see in, you know, a, a role in that sense. And I wasn't necessarily thinking of myself as a role player and activist back when I was in my mid twenties, but still, I think on subconscious level, it kind of hit me. So to be back on here now, it's a very long introduction to giving you my back on this thing, but I've continued to follow this issue closely for decades without ever really speaking publicly about it. Yeah. Well, I appreciate you doing so here. Certainly, you know, you, you have a lot of experience in it. Um, it's hard not to sort of keep up with it over the years. Um, and for, you know, my own context, my grandparents are Holocaust survivors. My, my dad's parents uh, left Poland for Israel on the early side and escaped there. And they fought in uh, the Israeli war for independence and the Haganah. Um, and, you know, my dad was born in Israel, um, before they moved to the States when he was young. And, um, it, it certainly is something that has hit home deeply. I mean, obviously I've always been attuned to the politics going on and, um, you know, I am someone that is a big advocate for human rights and equality and justice. And so I certainly can, can empathize in, with there being two sides of, the situation, but I think specifically on what happened, you know, October 7th and since, um, in terms of Hamas and, you know, known terrorist organization, um, brutally and barbarically murdering, raping Jews, you know, women, children. And it's just, I mean, it's made me sick. And I also like 
kids being tortured. I see my, my kids there and, you know, they did the same crime that these kids have, which is just being Jewish. And, um, you know, having grandparents that went through the Holocaust, it was ingrained in me as a kid that you, you can't just let things happen. You know, my dad always said, don't be a bystander to hate. And because that's what happened when the Holocaust happened, that's how everything could occur. And people always think those things can't happen again. Um, and unfortunately they, they can. And I mean, obviously I was sort of bred to be paranoid about this, but it, it feels scary what's going on. Some of the reaction has been scary and certainly there's been tremendous outpouring of support as well. Um, and I, you know, it's important to emphasize that you can be supportive of innocent people being brutalized without being supportive of a certain government. Um, and, and so, you know, myself having friends and family in Israel, having cousins that have been called into reserves, um, it is, it's a deeply personal. And so it's been something that has been pretty much all consuming the last few days and, you know, having young kids and being a father and seeing, seeing that side of it as well is just, um, you know, hit me harder than I, than I could have expected. Yeah, no, no, Jeffrey, I, I, I'm very much with you on that. You know, also, I also have this a somewhat similar background. My dad was, you know, born in Berlin in 1928 and his family had to flee in 1939. And, you know, um, and, and then his father, who had, you know, fought for Germany in the First World War and won the Iron Cross, was then picked up in Paris in, you know, the early 40s and sent to Auschwitz and killed in, killed there. So, you know, this sense of connection to Jewish history, I mean, when people ask me, how did I get involved in drug policy reform, my Jewish identity and my consciousness of Jewish mm. history and that sense about what happens when you decide to demonize and persecute a minority because they're different, yep. you know, in that sense, yep. you know, I think there, there was the famous uh, libertarian anti-psychiatry psychiatrist, Thomas Sass, who had that wrote that book, Ceremonial Chemistry, where the subtitle mm. was the ritual persecution, I think, of, 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 of Jews, witches and a few other minority groups. Right. And in that and I really see the drug war and the persecution of people in the drug war, mm. especially, you know, decades ago when I first got involved in this in the 80s, you know, as kind of following in that history of identifying a minority, whether it's Jews, whether it's unusual women who get defined as witches, whether it's some type of foreigners, whether it's gypsies, you know, whether it's homosexuals, whether, you know, whatever it might be. And that and that in some cases, you know, th those minorities may in fact be more of a troublemaking group th than not. But nothing ever warrants the level of discrimination and killing and murderous policies that they're subjected to. You know, and so yeah. that that has been kind of what what has driven me in a way, in the way in which I've seen it, you know, back in the late 80s. And even at times today, when you hear what people will say about drug users, you know, when you hear the kinds of policies that will be supported, when you hear about people talking about the death penalty, all that sort of stuff. So, yeah, so it's a very profound connection for me. And it's also interesting that when you look at the especially the early years of uh, drug policy reform, how many of the prominent people involved in it were Jewish. I mean, you know, you, you look at Norman Zinberg and Lester Grinspoon, the two Harvard professors who were leading figures. You look at Andrew Weil, who was a major figure. You look at Arnold Treback, you know, who was the co-founder of the Drug Policy Foundation. Um, you look at Ed Brecker, who wrote the famous, you know, Consumer Reports on illicit drugs 50 years ago. I mean, one after yeah. another, not uniformly, you know, Alfred yeah. Lindesmith, you know, was not and Rufus King was not some of the early leaders, but it was disproportionately Jews, as typically happened. If you look at who were among the leading white people supporting the civil rights movement early phase, it was typically yeah. a Jewish leader. So that's kind of woven into our thing, our heritage. Now, when it comes to the stuff that's going on now, I mean, fucking Hamas. I mean, how absolutely 
monstrous. I mean, to go over there and that what you see, I mean, the kind of face-to-face killings and over 200 young people just being mowed down, you know, at a rave in the desert, right? You know, families, you know, men being shot and their women and daughters, you know, their mothers, their grandmothers being taken hostage, you know, and dragged back into Gaza. I mean, and, and then they do that. And now they're putting that stuff out on social media. I mean, even the Russians in the Ukraine committing these massive human rights violations are not are not publicizing and bragging about the atrocities that they committed. Right. So what Hamas has done and showing their true colors in the most horrific, vicious way is 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 absolutely monstrous. And so the desire. And, and and if possible, the need to destroy Hamas is something I empathize with, you know, absolutely enormously. The other thing is when you look at what Israel is, going, is doing now in Gaza, which is horrific, right? I mean, bombing from the air, you know, I mean, you know, it's been true. Generally speaking, when Israel has had some of these raids, you know, they do the kind of thing where they get a warning. People get a warning on their phones in Gaza. You know, they, they, they do a, a drop, a kind of non-active bomb. They let people alert. They give them like they give them, you know, half an hour, 20 yeah. minutes, whatever it is to clear out. I don't even know if Israel is doing that now. So what's going to happen, unfortunately, in Gaza is the killing of thousands and thousands of people. But you there's probably going to be far more civilians killed in Gaza than died in Israel, you know, un- under that Hamas attack. Right now, of course, none of that would be happening, but for Hamas having done what it is, right? Israel's got no interest in throwing bombs in there. I don't like the brutality of what they're, what they're doing right now. And, you know, some of this stuff, you know, I mean, this is where Israel needs to be careful because if it gets brutal enough, it starts to constitute real war crimes, you know? Now, yeah. Hamas, however, is making a calculation like, fuck it. You know, if tens of thousands of, of Palestinian c- civilians in Gaza, you know, none of whom have had the right to vote in an election, Right. Since the, the one back in 2006, you know, if they're going to be killed and if they can become the ways to make the Jews in Israel look bad, then the hell will we'll, we'll, we'll murder and slaughter the Jews and we'll let we'll let Israel slaughter the Palestinians. And and toward what end? It's not as if this is going to lead to some, you know, better possible peace solution. There's no evidence that that's going to happen in this case. Right. Nothing that I mean, and it's the fact of the matter is Hamas like the Iranian government, like Hezbollah, you know, in Lebanon, their mission is not about peace in the Middle East. They have not, like the Palestinian Authority, accepted the notion of a two-state solution. They have not, like a growing number of Arabic governments, accepted the notion of a two-state solution. They are committed. Their mission statement says it's about killing Jews and wiping out the Jewish state of Israel for all time. So you're talking about an extremist, terrorist, nihilistic organization. Right. Which had kind of lulled people into a sense of security. Right. And, you know, what's the end game here? Right. It's it's nihilistic, suicidal, incredibly destructive. And, you know, so, I mean, that's you know, we can talk about if there are ways in which this redounds in some politically beneficial way down the road. But I mean, right now. You know, it's it's just it's it's horrific. It's horrific what happened in Israel, what Hamas did. It's horrific, you know, what's going on in in Gaza right now. And I don't know what the alternative is for the Israelis, quite frankly, because at this point, you know. And but the question is, what replaces Hamas is the other question. So there's all sorts of interesting political questions like that. Yeah, uh, I mean, absolutely. It's it's unbelievable what's going on there. And, um, you know, Hamas, the way that they have you know, treated their, their brethren. I mean, their fellow Palestinians has not, not been good. You know, they don't seem to care for peace. And, you know, how do you feel about 
people getting immediately political with it. You know, from my perspective, it's it's disgusting what's happening and we need to immediately condemn the hate. And yes, a, politics come into play at some point, but I just, I wonder, there, there seems to be a fine line. Like if you see what people are posting on social media in terms of bringing up sort of the political situation. And, you know, I do think it's important for everyone to understand, you know, what's been going on between Israel and uh, Palestinians over the years and, you know, how the territories have worked and things like that. But I just, there's no, Israel, uh, under no circumstances, has done anything like this to this. No, extreme I mean, look, I mean, Israel, inhumane I mean, look, to this let's level. Let's be clear. This what happened on what was it Sunday was the single greatest mass one day massacre of Jews since the Holocaust. Yep. Right. I mean, more Jews died so far in the Yom Kippur War, but they were largely military. Right. You know, um, more Jews and a huge number proportion of the population died during the War of Independence, um, you know, in 19 in 1948. But that extended over many, many months. I mean, it was, you know, six thousand people or whatever, but it's a substantial part of this very small population back then when you said your family was, you know, there and was fighting, you know, in, in that war, you know, with the with the Arabs called the Nakba, you know, the uh, you know, the, the destruction, you know, the, 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 well, I can't remember, the, the disaster. Right. Um, no. And 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 so so but that that slaughter. And so I have to say, when I saw some of the stuff coming out in the U.S. and other parts of the world of people on the left, and remember, having been in drug policy reform, you know, for almost 40 years. And so, you know, these are people who are many of my allies. So I don't know if they've been friends, but close and either refusing to condemn what had happened or finding some neutral language or even, God forbid, this horrible stuff like you know, the Harvard Student Group or some other ones, you know, yeah. basically, you know, you know, I mean, I mean, actually applauding this thing and saying that it's the Israeli occupation. You know, it's, it's not the Israeli occupation of, 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 of the West Bank, you know, that, that basically brought this down. Right. Because for Hamas, it's, it's the Israeli occupation of Israel. Right. It's like actually Jews being present there and having a government there, which which is the offensive action. Right. So 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 that's the there's that. And I should say I've been I've been sending people out some really good pieces that I've been reading. I mean, I think almost anything that Thomas Friedman writes in The New York Times. I mean, this is a guy who won two Pulitzer Prizes, one for reporting out of Beirut and one for reporting out of Jerusalem back in the 1980s. So I think he's brilliant on this stuff. You know, Brett Stevens, who's more to the right, but very smart and was the former editor of Jerusalem Post. You know, he's got a, he's a little more to the right to, on this stuff than I am, but very smart piece. Or I read the stuff that's in the forward, the famous Jewish newspaper that's now online in English. You know, Ju Judy, uh, Judy, uh, I can't remember her last name, but she's a former New York Times reporter writing good stuff. A guy named Rob Eshman writes some smart stuff and he wrote a piece in the forward. You know, and you, it's easy to Google this stuff. I don't think they have paywalls on it, you know, and where he's talking about you know, what the what the left is getting wrong about this stuff. And he's speaking from the perspective of somebody who supports the nation of Palestinian statehood. Right. So this is not right. just right wingers talking this way. It's even people who are left of center Israeli politics talking this way. But the notion that somehow this was going that what Hamas is doing is going to advance some kind of peace process or that somehow it was because of the Israeli occupation of the West Bank. I mean, at this point, Jeff, if you think about it, the only you know, possibility of moving things forward now, and Thomas Friedman's been brilliant about this, has been if the negotiation between the United States, Saudi Arabia, and Israel proceeds in such a way 
that Netanyahu, in order to get what they want, the Israelis would get what they want, in order to get there, has to break his coalition with the Israeli fascists that he put into the government. You know, Ben Gvir and Smotrich, the two guys. Yep. I mean, these are these are goddamn Jewish fascists, right? They are talking about ethnic cleansing in the West Bank. I mean, they, 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 are, they are a disgrace to everything that Judaism is about. And they come from a history Amen. of Jewish fanaticism that helped lead to the end of, of Jewish sovereignty in, in, you know, in Palestine, you know, two and a half thousand years ago, right? So the aim there was that something would come out of that, which would require some movement on this process, right? That was the only chance. And if you look at the political calculation that led Hamas to do what it's did, because it now sees Israel and the Abraham Accords and now the follow-ups, right? This growing number of diplomatic and trade relationships, you know, Jews being allowed to pray in the Gulf of Arabia, in Saudi Arabia, in these other, you know, in Kuwait, in, in, our, in these countries. They see that, right? And Iran sees that. And Hezbollah, and I, when I say Iran, by the way, I'm obviously speaking about the, the Khomeini regime, you know, the regime there, which is, you know, and, yes. and in Hezbollah, the same thing. I'm not talking about the whole population of, of these places, right? It's not as if the whole Iranian population supports what their government is doing, of course. right? So, same so in Israel. We, we, and and, and same thing, in, same thing yeah. in Israel, right? So, you know, and, and in fact, it almost raises an interesting question. Like, if in fact there had been some horrific attacks that had been on some of the settler communities, including, especially the illegal settler communities and others in the West Bank, it would have been a horrific thing from a human rights thing, killing civilians and that sort of thing, because by and large, you know, there are some killing. I mean, there have been incidents where, where you have settlers killing some Palestinians in the West Bank, but the kind of blatant killing, you don't have anything resembling that. It's an oppressive Israeli occupation policy, right? But it's not that type of thing. But it would have been a much more complicated story. But here, the killing of civilians, overwhelmingly civilians in this initial attack, right? There were some soldiers, some police, but overwhelmingly civilians and, you know, grandmothers, mother, women, children, the brutal killing. And so, I mean, I mean, I mean, that that thing was all about precipitating basically a horrific Israeli response. So right now there's this window where there's still a huge amount of sympathy for Israel because of the atrocities. And now as more and more video footage is coming out, that has been validated and such. But very soon you're going to be seeing, in fact, it's already happening. You know, I mean, hundreds, thousands of children could be killed in the Israeli bombardments in Gaza soon. Right. The cutting off of electricity and water. Right. Because remember, Gaza, I mean, people keep saying it's surrounded by Israel. It's not surrounded by Israel. They have a border with Egypt as well. Right. So Egypt yeah. has the option. And they, I read just a few hours ago, they're deciding not to do it to allow people to exit Gaza in the midst mm -hmm. of this bombardment. And Egypt, I think, is not. It's basically keeping them locked up there. But it's not just been Israel, you know, that's, that's been keeping it that way. And quite frankly, the day that Gaza, the day that Hamas, if let me step back for a second. I know I'm just going yeah. on and on here, but I'm obviously no, passionate. No, it's great. And, I, and, you know, you're, you're giving me a little audience on this thing. You know, the truth is when Israel unilaterally withdrew from Gaza in 2005, remember Gaza had been, you know, part of like with, with Israel, like with the West Bank, had been part of the British mandate. You know, um, then in 1948, it was occupied by Egypt. So Gaza was under an Egyptian occupation, military occupation from 1948 until basically 1967. And 
Gaza was not as bad off back then. And a lot fewer, only had like, you know, a couple hundred thousand people back then. They were allowed to go back and forth to Egypt. They were, Egypt tolerated raids from Gaza into Israel proper, which made things difficult. Then Israel takes it over in 67. Initially, there's a real period where Gaza's got its own airport, where there's a lot of freedom to move, you know, in and out, where, where there's basically a movement of people across into the Israeli, across the border into Israel to work, right? And then you begin to have violence. Some of it is frustration with the Israeli occupation, obviously, but some of it is rejection that there will ever be a Jewish state in the land of Palestine, in the land of Israel, right? And so, but when, when Israel decided under a right-wing government, Ariel Sharon, who was the notorious right-wing Jewish leader, you know, Israeli leader at that time, to withdraw unilaterally, that was a moment where the Palestinians in Gaza could have realized that the best way to build a, you know, an independent, effective country first in Gaza and to set a model for what the West Bank could become and to reassure the Israeli center that, in fact, peace could really work would have been to flat out lay down any form of offensive arms, right, to say we are not going to spend money on armaments, right? Except for our own internal security. We, we are not going to spend money building tunnels and arming our sort of stuff. We are going to demonstrate that we can be a vibrant, peace-loving society. And in doing so, we will move the Israeli center to accept a similar solution for the West Bank. As Thomas Friedman once said, the only audience that matters ultimately for the Arab world is the Israeli center. And back in that time, still there was still an opportunity for the Israeli center to be moved by that. But in fact, what happened? You know, first you have Fatah, you know, Arafat's party, you know, takes over for a year, but they become incredibly corrupt. You know, they're not providing good leadership. You then have Hamas win an election in 2006, much to people's surprise. Well, I don't think they won a majority, but the electoral rules were such that they fairly won an election back then. But instead, what do they do? They just hang on to the original mission, say our ultimate mission is the evisceration and eradication of the Jews from Palestine, you know, et cetera, et cetera. And and, and ju it just became a that was the major lost opportunity there. So right now, you know, you have the folks in Hamas. They're looking at what's going on. They're seeing discussions with Israel, Saudi Arabia, the U.S. They're seeing more arrogance, you know, accepting some level. That's the only possible avenue towards some sort of peaceful resolution in the West Bank. Right. And they want to blow it up. And it looks yeah. right now that maybe they've succeeded in blowing up any mo movement towards a peaceful reconciliation, a peaceful resolution between Israel and the Palestinians. Yeah. Yeah, I mean, it's 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 pretty devastating, uh, especially given that some progress was being made. And, um, you know, I think that it's it, it's clear that there are certain arguments on both sides of the aisle. But meanwhile, you know, you've got the extremists and then sort of the peaceful center in, in both mm -hmm. of these sides is getting pushed out of the way and is suffering because of it. And so, you know, I think it's important to empathize with those suffering on all sides and that... I, there's no world where it makes sense to cheer what's been happening in any way, you know, like the, the Harvard group that you mentioned, like many others, um, even if this is a culmination of built up frustration, uh, this isn't the way that should culminate under any circumstance. Yeah. Well, it's interesting to see what's happening in the left. So you saw in New York City, we had a demonstration uh, by the Democratic Socialists, some of whom have, be, have begun to have some political influence in New York City politics, in New York State. But I was inspired to see that, you know, AOC, you know, the left wing Democratic Congresswoman yep. very rapidly condemned it. 
And I saw that not just the Democratic political leadership, the, the, one of the leading congressmen, Bowman, who've been elected with their support, he condemned it. And I saw that even some of the leaders are now pulling back from that. Right. You know, then I look at somebody like, um, you know, Cornell West. And Cornel West was a colleague of mine when we were both teaching at Princeton, and we knew each other very slightly. And I remember, you know, he's I see, regarded him as an ally on our drug policy reform activism. You know, I think his running for president of the Green Party, I think, is a nightmare in the same way that Jill Stein, you know, effectively handed the election over to Donald Trump. And, you know, to some extent, Ralph Nader, you know, handed it over to, to you know, yeah. Bush. I, I mean, I just think it's disastrous, you know, short-sighted thinking on this sort of stuff. But I saw Cornel West's comments were very lame. I'm very disappointed by that. So, you know, there are others in this way, you know, that that I just think it's 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 terrible. Now, the question, though, is, is Israel's reaction in Gaza like, you know, you hope they don't undermine all the support for that, because there was obviously a face to face brutality to what Hamas did, you know, in those in those, you know, Israeli towns, et cetera. I mean, just horrific point blank murdering. I mean, just horrific, you know, but it's also true that when you're dropping bombs that are killing thousands and thousands of civilians, many of whom may have been, you know, hated Hamas. Right. You know, I just saw there was one Arab family who had been doing this kind of, you know, peace thing in the West Bank and the guy's entire family was killed in in Gaza in a bombardment. Right. So, you know, just like you had some of the people who were killed down, you know, in Israel were people who've been involved in the peace movement. I mean, I, you know, so. Yeah, that and, and I don't know what I, I don't know what Israel does about that, quite frankly, because yeah. we've known that Hamas is it's not just using the hundred or a hundred, hundred fifty Jewish hostages as a kind of shield and as a deterrent. But yeah. they have historically used, yes. the, you know, the, the Palestinian Their population civilians. there. Right. And it's understandable yep. why, because, you know, you know, Israel is going to be Israel has because it has some element of respecting the laws of war has been reluctant to blow up civilian buildings. And, you know, Hamas is headquarter buildings and its military stuff and other stuff is all kind of underneath oftentimes schools and all, the, all this sort of stuff. Now, Hospitals, what yep. effect Israel does and in a population of two million people in a territory half the size of New York City, right, with a, a gazillion tunnels built underground and, you know, which to try to occupy something like that. I mean, you know, I don't know what Israel does in this thing, um, but it is also the case that, you know, I, I don't know, because it could be a week from now, the images of what happened in Israel are fading in the public, you know, consciousness because right. you know people have an enormously short span right now. And yeah. meanwhile, you see images of you know thousands of civilians, including children, being killed in Gaza by Israeli bombs, right? And 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 electricity cut off to hospitals and and all this sort of stuff. And you know, so I, I don't know what the answer is here. Um, you know, I, I I really don't know what it is, but you know, Hamas. You know, and you remember Hamas. Remember, the only other significant political player tolerated there was Islamic Jihad, which was a group that was even more extreme than Hamas. Remember, right. the last couple of years, Hamas had been kind of like you know, quieting things down, making clear that when Islamic Jihad threw some missiles into Israel, that it wasn't them. And Israel had eased up. They were letting 20,000 Palestinians in Gaza cross the border for day jobs in Israel, just as they had done in pre, you know, in earlier years. You know, they had begun to lift some of the oppressive stuff. They'd begun to let some of the Arab governments put a lot more support into Gaza. So, you know, but that was all about trying to once again have some normalization. Right. Quiet things down. Um, I mean, look, politically, also the way I see it, Jeff, 
is that Hamas and Netanyahu, and especially even more than Netanyahu, you know, the Israeli fascists, they are essentially, they are effect, de facto partners with one another, right? You know, because for Netanyahu, and especially for the people to the right of him, this has been the opportunity to say, look, this is who the Arabs, who the Palestinians really are. This is Hamas. This is Hamas, the government. And, and they're, you know, and that, you know, it's possible in the West Bank until last week that if there'd been an election, they might've defeated, you know, Fatah, you know, cause the, the Palestinian authority has become old and corrupt and Abbas and ineffective and people are frustrated with that. Right. So, so, you know, so, you know, but the fact of the matter is, you know, Hamas has basically legitimized the right wing anti, you know, effective peace narrative in Israel. And and conversely, you know, you, you get Israeli fascists talking openly about ethnic cleansing and expelling the Arabs from the West Bank. And that just legitimizes, you know, and, and the notion of some of, of some of the Jews who wants to say it's all ours, all of Palestine is Jewish right. territory, whether it's a biblical thing or an imperialist thing or whatever. You know, I mean, to me, that's not, that's not a mirror image of the Hamas and the others rejecting any notion that there should this is a land which two people have to find an effective way to share in peace. You know, I'll tell you something. One other thing I'll say about this. When I look at the Israeli debate, I mean, there essentially is virtually no left in Israel anymore. You know, it's apart from the Jewish population. You're talking about under 10 percent, if 5 percent can be defined in terms of, of left in some sense. Right. And the Israeli center has moved far to the right since the second intifada. You know, I mean, there was that moment, you know, back in 2456 when you had you know, Arab terrorists, Palestinian terrorists blowing up, you know, you know, Passover seders and buses. And, you know, I mean, you know, I mean, just horrific stuff. And there was I think that was a fundamental moment with the Israeli center. It's hearts hardened and they basically got disgusted, you know, with, 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 with the whole thing there. But now, you know, when you have these essentially, you know, I mean, oh, I know the point I was going to say. For me, the debate has essentially been between um, among Israeli Jews, you know, who make up 80 percent of the Israeli population, right? About 20 percent Arab and a small sliver of other that essentially the debate has been between two groups. One group has been the group that is obsessed with Israel's security. Right. Which by and large has included a significant majority of Israel's, you know, intelligence and military leadership. The other group is a group which is obsessed with Israel's security as well, but also believes that ultimately all of Judea and Samaria, the West Bank, has to be all Jewish Israel territory, period. Right. And to my mind, I'm always going to bet on the people who are obsessed with security. Right. And who don't have some ideologic or quasi religious, you know, commitment, you know, to some territory. Right. Because that's yep. then they're essentially indistinguishable from other sorts of fundamentalists. Right. So for me, yeah. the fact that the majority of the Israeli security establishment has said we need to find a solution that does not involve ruling over the Palestinians in the West Bank in perpetuity, that doing so is corrupting to the Israeli society, corrupting to the Israeli soul, that, you know, even if you want to ignore the fact that they have a right that it's their land as well, that, you know, that there has to be some effective, you know, movement towards, you know, whatever it's going to be. I mean, there have been proposals for Israeli, what they call a confederation or other things, but something was in that direction. But it's, but, and it, well, quite frankly, if you want to look at when the question gets asked, how did the Israeli government and security establishment so drop the ball on the threat from Hamas? I mean, 
on the one hand, there's the fact that so many people in the Israeli military and intelligence have been so revolted by what Netanyahu and his, you know, unprecedentedly right-wing coalition are doing in terms of the courts that they basically were, you know, kind of withdrawing from reserve duty and things like that. But the other part is that Netanyahu actually put an Israeli fascist, right? You know, Ben Gvir, I think it is, in charge of national security, in charge of, of national security and in charge of the border police. And his obsession is protecting the Israeli settlements, including the illegal Israeli settlements in the West Bank. That's been his focus there. So they totally touched their eye off the ball, right? They created the place where there's a growing, growing numbers, amounts of frustration among the Palestinian population in the West Bank. That did not lead to Hamas doing what it did. It's just something that Hamas took advantage of. But I mean, in that sense, if part of what happens right now, and it's good to see the Israeli government, you know, form a a, a kind of emergency war cabinet in which Smotrich yeah. and Ben Gvir, the two fascists, are not part of it, right? In which they've reached out to the Israeli military and political center on this sort of stuff. But if this somehow helps to delegitimize those fascists who have become part of the government in Israel, that will itself be a positive right. thing down the road. And I know, you know, once again, you're saying, we should focus on the disaster that's happened in Israel and the misery and the human rights. And I agree with that. But I got to say, because I've been thinking politically and all my life and because I want to see, is there a silver lining on this nightmare going on right now? Is there a way in which yeah. this redounds in some positive way? Because if all that Israel does is just brutalize Gaza, it'll lose the sympathy and empathy of the world, lose the support. And, you know. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, I, I think that it, it there are certainly you're going to have to find the silver linings in some of these things. And hopefully this brings Israel more together. You mentioned the new wartime coalition coming together. Um, but, you know, I worry that it's just going to create extreme, even more so extreme spite between the two sides and, you know, to the Israeli center. Between that which mentioned. two sides? Between, between which between two sides? Between Israel and the Palestinians and then between uh, the Israeli center and sort of the, the Palestinians that are more for peace as well. Um, it's going to create spite just because there's been so much violence. And I think that when people see their own people get brutalized, they, they feel the need for revenge, whether it's, you know, helpful to the cause or not. So you I, know, th I'm I think that's I mean, Joe, I think it's true. I mean, the, the desire for revenge, right, is enormously powerful. We also know that acting on the desire for revenge purely to express one's sense of vengeance and hate, right, is not strategic either on an individual level yeah. or on a, you know, a broader political level, that ultimately what's going on now has to be looked through the lens of where and how do we want this thing to land up you know, one month from now, six months from now, one year from now, five years, 10 years from now. I mean, that's the obligation of political leadership and military leadership is to think long term and is to plan what's going on right now. You know, I mean, you know, there's, the, your world's you know, full of historical examples where you where you, you try to decimate a group, you know, that that is just being, you know, doing devastating things and it gets replaced by an even more vicious group. Right. You know, I mean, I mean, yeah. it's like, you know, when, um, uh, uh, you know, after 9-11, when uh, what was the name of it? The, uh, uh, you know, the terrorist group uh, headed by um, Al Qaeda, Al Qaeda. And then what is it? What replaces Al Qaeda? ISIS, which almost makes Al Qaeda yeah. look like moderate, which is crazy because Al Qaeda was itself a, a wildly nihilistic, you know, you know, brutal group. But ISIS comes in and they're they're at the next level. And so what we want to you know, the question is, how do we think through so that we can get to a place which is a more peaceful and just 
Middle East and a situation involving Israel and the Palestinians. I mean, that needs to be, you know, the longer term goal here. Yeah. Right. And it's complicated. Yeah. I mean, I mean, like right now, the threat posed by Iran to the states in the in the Gulf is part of what's encouraging them to open up with Israel. I mean, there's a lot of other benefits to opening up in terms of trade and development and, you know, all these kinds of things are doing that. But it's the threat posed by Iran. You know, the fact that Israel and Saudi Arabia and the other Gulf states share a common fear of Iran. Right. That's what's yeah. helping promote this thing. Now, we'd love to see the fall of the uh, of the uh, of the Khomeini regime, Khomeini regime, you know, in Iran, we'd like to see it be replaced by a more moderate regime. Remember, Iran used to have close relationships with Israel. I mean, under the Shah, and but it could have also happened after the Shah with the with the the, the initial the group the, among the liberal groups that initially pushed out the Shah. There was not the same aversion to Israel, I believe, you know, at that time. Now, if that happened, Saudi Arabia might have less incentive to be reaching a peace with Israel right now. So the situation yeah. is, you know, the politics become very complicated here, but it really, the, the obligation of political leadership really is, and military leadership, is to be thinking strategically about how do we think about what we're doing now, right? I mean, obviously you have to stop the bombs coming, still coming out of Gaza into Israel. And we have to, you know, yeah. obliterate as much of Hamas as possible. But how, how, how do we, what factor what we do now so that it results in a better result down the road. Yeah. You know? Yeah, absolutely. I think that's going to be very important, but hard to do given the domino effects that can come from the situation. You know, you're seeing Hezbollah now attacking from the North. Um, you know, how do you foresee this conflict spreading or not spreading? Uh, and how does it, you know, potentially connect to what's going on in Ukraine? Well, I mean, first of all, with Hezbollah in the north, right? I mean, Israel, remember, you know, I, I remember there was another great Thomas uh, 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 Friedman column where he talked about when Israel originally went into Lebanon back in the, when was it, the 80s? I can't, I can't remember, but, but they were responding where the Palestinians, PLO, had really kind of taken over, I think, in southern Lebanon, right? And there was a growing Lebanese resistance, including among the Lebanese Shiites, right, who are now the base of Hezbollah. And Thomas Friedman told the story um, where some, you know, Shiite Lebanese guy in the southern Lebanon is saying to the Israelis who had arrived, thank you for coming. Thank you for removing the Palestinians who are the, the PLO who is oppressing us here, but don't overstay your welcome. Right. Mm -hmm. And unfortunately, Israel overstayed its welcome. And that played into the emergence of Hezbollah, Right. You know, and, and the growth of Hezbollah and eventually Israel withdrew from basically, basically, I think, all of Lebanon. Right. There's a little buffer area now or whatever. Right. So it's about thinking strategically there. Now, Hezbollah, you know, they're in an interesting spot because they have far more you know, capacity to wreak havoc in Israel. They have weapons that could, you know, hit Tel Aviv, that could hit, you know, the Ben-Gurion airport that could, you know, they have huge numbers, you know, armed by Iran, Syria, who the hell else knows, you know, who's there, right? So they have a large capacity, right? But they also know that when they got engaged before with Israel, Israel came in horrifically, Right. I mean, huge numbers of people died. Israel bombarded Beirut. I mean, you know, Israel was not gentle. It was, you know, ugly, ugly. Right. And so I imagine that right now Israel's got a there must be some types of deterrence in place. It's not just about doing in in in, you know, the Hezbollah occupied territory 
Remember, Hezbollah is probably the single most powerful political force in Lebanon for numerous decades, and they have not much interest in an effective Lebanese government. They've kind of undermined effective Lebanese government. And it's not just them. I mean, there's all huge amounts of corruption and tribalism in Lebanon that stands in the way of Lebanon fulfilling its immense potential. Because Lebanon, remember, once had the possibility to be sort of like Israel in terms of development, intellectual, you know, caliber, I mean, all this sort right. of business, entrepreneurial stuff, right? So Hezbollah is in a tough spot because there's some expectation among the radicals and the nihilists and others that they'll step up and join Hamas. At the same time, they know what it's like to have, you know, the Israel come in full force on this thing. And I, I also wonder if there are some other deterrents that are not public that Israel has vis-a-vis -vis Hezbollah. You know, I mean, who knows? But in the, you know, the, the hard world of politics about what happens, not just to the leadership, but their families, what have you. So we'll see. I mean, Hezbollah threw some you know, missiles in today as if they're going to show a little support, but it's clearly at a very low calibrated level. Right. Yeah. And meanwhile, Iran, you know, does Iran actually want to get involved? Because if Iran, which has one of the most largest militaries in the region, you know, do they want to go to the point of of, of approaching you know, I mean, they, I mean, if Iran comes, I mean, you're talking about two powerful militaries engaging. All right. So, I mean, that, that's a, I mean, that's is a this nightmare. a new world war as that if that happens? I mean, it opens up that possibility. Right. Yeah. I mean, it, it's, um, you know, I mean, if Iran, you know, Iran's, you know, doing a lot of bluster, like don't go after us. And so far, you know, the the Wall Street Journal put out an article over the weekend saying that there was evidence of Iranian government backing of the Hamas incursion. Today, the U.S. intelligence has been saying so far, we're not seeing that. All of our intelligence pickups are suggesting that key people who should have or would have been in the know if this, you know, we're not seeing that they knew. Mm. So, you know, whether it's some particular isolated element with the Iranian government or a security establishment that actually was more closely involved beyond just providing weapons or planning this, whether Hamas gave them a heads up before they did it. Right. So people realize things could really, really blow. Saudi Arabia's got to be looking at this. And, you know, they were in a growing, increasingly strong position, looking at the possibility of maybe reaching some accommodation with Israel and the U.S. that would involve provision of, you know, non-weapons-grade nuclear materials and trade stuff and security arrangement. So Saudi Arabia's looking at this thing. And meanwhile, you have a problem that even though the governments in these countries are moving towards peace with Israel and establishing diplomatic relations, the public's are not necessarily there. Mm. And there is a sympathy and empathy with the Palestinian population, you know, um, that on the one hand is very sincere and heartfelt and has to do with the fact that, you know, the Jews are still seen as the aliens occupying, you know, the Arabs, even though half the Israelis in Israel actually came from the Arab lands or, you know, I mean, that's the other thing. There was a massive transfer of Jews in the past, you know, you know by and large, yeah. the Jews living in the Arab world were not Zionists prior to 1948. But once Israel was created, there were pogroms throughout much of the Arab world, you know, and you had places, these countries, many of them had tens or hundreds of thousands of Jewish populations, sometimes dating back two or 3000 years, Iraq, especially Yemen and others. Yeah. And now you look around the region and apart from a few thousands in North Africa, there are essentially no Jews left or a handful left in a bunch of these countries. Right. So but but, you know, for, for them, the population is sympathetic to the plight of the Palestinians. That's their I mean, you think you hope you like to hope that when they see the imagery coming out 
of the, you know, of, you know, young Jews being massacred, you know, at, at the party and at the this and that, that some part of them goes in their brain and says, that's wrong, that's wrong, that's wrong. No matter what Israel has been doing in the West Bank with the Palestinians, that is wrong, right? But the other thing to remember is that for decades, until fairly recently, much of the Arab leadership around the Arab world we're not interested in a peace with Israel. To some extent, having the Jews in Israel as their enemy and as a rallying cry was a way to distract their populations from the fact that they were living under fairly repressive monarchies and dictatorships. You know, yeah. for Saddam Hussein, for the, you know, for the kings and, you know, the monarchs in the, in, in the Gulf. I mean, for many of them, it was like, hey, it's the Jews, it's the Jews, it's the Jews. And therefore, the fact, the question like, why is the Arab world the least, one of the least developed parts in, in, in the entire world? Why are we lagging so far behind in economic development, intellectual development, in scientific development? Why, why are we not doing this sort of stuff? You know, why is, why is so much of the wealth concentrated at the top? Why do we have prisons where political dissidents are being tortured for all sorts of things? You know, as long as you can keep people focused on the plight of the Palestinians and the Jews occupying Palestine and oppressing mm -hmm. Palestinians, that was a distraction. Now, that shifted with the growing number of relationships as a result of the Abraham Accords and such. So it's a tricky situation for all parties involved. Yeah. Yeah, I mean, it's it's beyond tricky. And, um, you know, I, I read an article recently, I, I forget which publication, just about sort of how we're moving from uh, when the U.S. was the world power and now we're kind of a multipolar society in that, you know, this is this particular incident is just sort of stressing that and showing it. And then especially if Iran gets involved, um, we're going to see that to even in greater extent. And then you're also seeing what's going on in, uh, with Russia and Ukraine and, um, you know, things going on with China. So it's uh, I, we're seeing kind of a reshuffling of world power. No, Jeff, it really is. I mean, you're making some very good points there because you look, for example, just first of all, just on the bilateral stuff, you know, the statement from Putin was much more, quote unquote, balanced and non-supportive of Israel than ever in his, you know, 20 years of ruling Russia has been. Um, you know, the relationship between Russia and Israel is a very complicated one because Israel, you know, Russia plays a major role in Syria. You know, Israel counts on the Russian, you know, Russia could really make life tough for Israel. Right. I mean, you know, I mean, Israel needs to go in there and sort of you know, knock out, you know, weapons, things and missile things. And they need to work with the Russians to make sure they're not actually any Russians. I mean, it, it's a tricky relationship. And then, of course, that, you know, the assault in, in Ukraine, you know, where, you know, Israel's under huge pressure to support Ukraine more. And Israel has been holding back and has been criticized for not throw, you know, giving as much help as possible to the Ukraine, where you still have a substantial Jewish population. And we're not just President Zelensky, but even his prime minister, both Jews. I mean, remarkable. The only country yeah. in the world, I think, but either the only one or one of two in the world, we have both a Jewish president and Jewish prime minister, right? And a country that was known for being anti-Semitic and knowing for being, you know, open to the fascists and all of this has actually turned out to be a country which can elect Jews into those positions is really quite remarkable. So Israel's had a very tough situation there. And for the Russians and for Putin, I want to, I want to emphasize Putin because, you know, not all the Russians support, obviously, what Putin's doing, right? And they don't actually have open free media either. So, but for Putin, the fact that Western arms, you know, the U.S. is now going to be providing weapons to Israel that might otherwise have gone to Ukraine, 
right? The fact that its military resources yeah, exactly. and its capabilities are going to be distracted to focus on what's going on there now. So that is good for Putin. The fact that the price of oil jumped up because of con the way conflict in the Middle East always increased the price of oil, that's good for Putin because they're oil exporters, right? So yeah. there are numerous ways in which this plays to their on their behalf. And then you look at Xi, you know, the kind of, you know, wannabe totalitarian dictator in China, you know, wanting to be another Mao, right? You know, kind of overturning a kind of structure and politics in China that given some people an optimism that this would be, if not a democratic state, at least a more tolerant and effective and, you know, one you could work with. But what's going on in China is an increasingly militaristic and incredibly bigoted vis the rest of the world as well. Yeah. And, you know, for Xi, he's going, hey, where's the opportunity in this for me? Right. So, you know, he's not been an ally in all this sort of stuff. Um, and then, as you said at the beginning, you know, the United States, you know, being, you know, part of a bipolar wor world with the Soviet Union from the end of World War II until the dissolution of the Soviet Union in the early 90s, um, where we were the more dominant one in a bipolar world. But it did lend some elements of stability in substantial parts of the world. You know, there were little local yeah. worlds and there was a tragedy in Vietnam and Southeast Asia, which was which was huge. Right. right. But it kept a certain level of control. Right. And then when the I mean, US some of the most peaceful times that we've had as humans, really, well, I mean, right. even that though there were still atrocities that occurred. Exactly. I mean, people who's at Stephen, uh, was it Pinsker or Pinker or whatever, was reading the book, and he points out that the level of killing, the percentage of the world being killed in violence, you know, in recent years is the lowest in world history, which is quite remarkable, right? And then you look at the period from the early 90s until a decade or so when you had a more, the U.S. had a kind of, unip, you know, we were the superpower, the one. Right. And, you know, many people actually pointed out that we really screwed up. I mean, that, you know, that 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 engaging in Iraq the way we did. Uh, I mean, who knows? if we, we never know what would have happened if we hadn't. But by and large, it looks like it was a disastrous mistake. And in Afghanistan, which always we always knew nobody, no foreign power can ever win in Afghanistan. It is the quagmire yeah. for everybody. You know, on the one hand. You know, yes, there were millions, tens of millions of people in Afghanistan who had, you know, 15, 20 years where they actually could live in a decent society where women could be treated with rights and all this sort of stuff. So there was a kind of blossoming and an opening there. But then in the end, the Taliban's back in control. So I don't know that it was all a waste, but for the U.S. to spend, what is it, one or two trillion dollars over 20 years in that region that could have been spent in so much more productive ways, that the way in which we undermined our respect, our military prowess, our political power. I mean, I, so I oftentimes said that George Bush and Dick Cheney did more to reduce American power and respect in the world than almost any pre-existing administration because of this disastrous, you know, wars that they propagated there. And, you know, both it's not that not that we were not that we were wrong to go in and knock out the Taliban and Al Qaeda in Afghanistan, but to then try to engage in this futile enterprise for 20 years leading to nothing. And then in Iraq on false pretenses to go in there. So, you know, but we 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 were in a preeminent situation. And that did provide for some measure of stability around the world. And now that you're having a situation with an ascendant China headed up by a really, you know, she is one of the great threats to global peace and security now. Um, 
you know, for the people on the left in Europe and America who focus on, you know, the remnants of American imperialism, which are substantial, but then close their eyes or attack Israel for what it's doing, you know, unjustly, but still in the West Bank, but close their eyes to what China is doing, you know, what has done in Tibet what they're doing to the Uyghurs in China, what, they, what, what they've done to Hong Kong, what they want to do to, uh, to Taiwan, you know, what they're doing in the Pacific region about increasingly being expansionist and imperialist, you know, vis-a-vis those territories. I mean, that is serious stuff that's going on. And that's a very aggressive, you know, saying uh, it's, a, it's a power with more people in the rest of the world, you know, a billion and a half people and saying it's our time and we're going to grab the moment and we're going to assert our power. I mean, it's a very, very dangerous time. And that's not even paying attention to the threats posed by climate change, to the yeah. threats posed by new biological weapons and the threat of new, you know, uh, you know, diseases passing around the world by the by the potentially, you know, existential threat posed by artificial yes. intelligence. I mean, so, I mean, I, I yearn is, for a world where we where we get out of our own way, right? And we're in the humans are in this together, fighting all those other things you mentioned. I mean, it's look, look, it's our own country as well. I mean, of course. You know, I, I, I mean, I, I get pissed off at some of all the woke bullshit on the left and and the ways, but I oftentimes see that to me, some of the stuff going on the more far, you know, kind of woke left because I see myself, my own politics as, as center left, but I see that stuff. It's 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 kind of like the way we looked at the you know the socialists and this and that fighting with one another and stuff like that while the fascists and the Nazis were taking power, you know, in the nineteen yeah. twenties and thirties in Europe, right? Right now, America is also facing some major threats. I mean, if Donald Trump becomes president again, and he's already made clear that if the second time comes around, he's not going to have responsible senior military leadership or others around him, right? You saw there was a survey of all the people who served in his cabinet, and I think all but two said they would never vote for the guy again. You you have reports from the former senior military leaders talking about what a fundamental threat he represented to American security, right? I I mean, it's just nightmarish possibility. And if he has a Republican Congress to boot. Right. And meanwhile, you have this dysfunctional Republican leadership in the House that, you know, now they're debating between two far right fanatics. They have the Speaker of the House being brought down, I think, for the first time in American history, you know, by some fanatics, including bizarrely Nancy Mace, who is our ally on cannabis reform and other drug policy reform. That's a weird one. Um, but, you know, and, and in fact, where you have a majority of Congress who would be supporting sensible, pragmatic legislation to deal with climate, to deal with economy, to deal with immigration, to deal with a whole range of things. Right. You know, instead, you've got this rump group that is actually driving the party there. So it is crucially important. And but, you know, for if Trump comes back in and he's basically kissing Putin's butt. And he's kind of, you know, I mean, and he's got the guy can't read a two page memo. The guy doesn't know his ass from his elbow. And meanwhile, you have a quarter of the a quarter of the country or more who are rah, rah Trump holders, like like the fascists who supported Hitler and Mussolini. And then you have another quarter who are willing to vote for him because they like that he brought, you know, you know, reduced taxes or because he's better than the woke left. I mean, or some caricature of typically of the woke left. I mean, the fact that in America that that is where we are right now. I mean, so, yeah, the world is it uh, it, it is a scary place. You know, I mean, I'll tell you something. I'm about to become a grandfather at the end of the year. And, you know, I'm so happy about this. And yet and yet I look at, oh, my God, you know. 
you know, where, what, what is the world going to be? And, you know, will there be yeah. places to escape or will there be no escape from, from, from this madness? Yeah. Yeah. I mean, I think about that too, having young kids and what kind of world we're bringing them into. And, you know, while sort of this power shift is going on internationally, the U S is just fumbling as messily as they possibly can. Um, our government and it's, you know, especially like what's going on in the house, like you mentioned. Um, and it's, Yes, I'm also hopeful that we we don't get another Trump presidency. I think that that is a nightmare scenario and I you know, I think at this moment in time, you know, I mentioned earlier coming from uh Holocaust survivor grandparents and you know, we've always been sort of trained to be paranoid that hate can rise again, that people will not pay attention to it in, until it's too late. And, you know, I'm starting to feel the ebb and flow of that to a scary extent. And, you know, if we get to that worst case where there is another presidency from, you know, a, basically a monster that has no sense as a narcissist and is making people feel empowered to be violent and hateful, like it's not, unfortunately, it's not unthinkable for us to get to a point like that. And I'm literally concerned for my own family. And, um, you know, I, I hope that we can find ways to find more peace. I just, I don't know the answer to that, but, um, yeah. it's a scary time. Well, it's also know that sometimes when, when the kind of political fever and cultural fever that's going on now in, you know, it's, it's you know, so, so much of the world, right? I mean, you know, the, you know, Putin's horrific, you know, situ what he's done in Russia and Ukraine and she in China. And then you look at Erdogan in Turkey and you look at Orban in, in Hungary and we'll see what happens in Poland where they're going to have elections shortly. But, you know, you look what's happening in parts of the you know, parts of Latin America. You look what's going on right now in Nicaragua with a really horrific government engaging in massive violations of human rights. You look at other places, other places where criminal organizations are becoming very powerful, yeah. you know, and then you look in Europe, you know, I'll tell you, Jerry, I, a few years ago, um, I went and I got my German citizenship. So I'm now a dual citizen. Oh, wow. And, you know, I, you know, I'm entitled to it because my dad, you know, had to flee, you know, Germany was stripped of his citizenship with his family back in 39. And, you know, you sometimes think, my God, does that mean that one day Germany might be, you know, as just as my family fled and landed up in the U.S., you know, does that mean that one day it goes the other way? But then you look in Germany and you look in other country, countries in Europe where, you know, the far right wing is gaining strength. Now, in some places, they've got into power and then been put out. And so, you know, we've seen that Europe had had some experience with ha kind of having them in power without really pursuing their full agenda and then losing power. So there's been some evolution. Um, you know, it's um, I mean, I even think, you know, I, I, I kind of wasn't. But I'm thinking about when I was a teenager in the early 70s or actually, I, I, yeah, I turned 13 in 1970. Um, there were people back then, many people, serious people who thought America might be coming to the point of civil war or some, you know, there were riots in the street. There were riots, you know, after Martin Luther King and Bobby, Ke you know, getting killed and, you know, you know, you know, black residents of inner cities kind of burning down the, the neighbors in which they lived. You had, you know, National Guards troops coming out and killing. You had, I mean, you know, there was a large amount and people worry, where is all this going? And then it kind of quiet it down, you know, Jerry Ford, Jimmy Carter, you know, and Ronald Reagan was a return, but it wasn't like, you know, the country coming apart, right? Um, so the question is, can somehow this fever in a way break? Can there be yeah. the types of political developments or structural forms, you know, that will 
that will empower the center because still the majority of Americans yes. are in the center. Yeah. The polarization yes. is partially a reflection of, you know, the way of the primary political system, a reflection of the nature of which media is working, a reflection of a lot of exactly. things. But by and large, the majority of Americans rely someplace still in the center. And it's yes. that center, it, in my mind, that needs to be empowered. Yeah, we need to determine how do we make that center loud. You know, right now, um, I had a former podcast guest, uh, best-selling author Todd Rose, talking about um, how twenty percent or something of posts on on or excuse me, eighty percent of posts on Twitter were from like twenty percent of the individuals. You know, the loud, the loudest on each side, and the way that our media works, it amplifies the loud. And so, how do we get? our center to come together, especially when there's this cut right down the middle between the two aisles and the centers, like you said, are they're choosing to go one way or the other based on what they think is a little bit better. You know, we, we have to find a way to, for somehow the, the sane mass in the middle to come together. Well, and I, I don't know the answer. I mean, to that. Jeff, look, look, I mean, if you look, for example, Israel's a state of emergency, they've just declared a war cabinet, which includes members of the opposition to deal with the war and to agree that all the stuff that was dividing Israel is going to be put on the side for now, right? So obviously everybody's thinking ahead about how to position themselves for once this war winds down, right? They're thinking both about who to, who's going to get blamed and who's going to get blamed for the, the intelligence disaster that resulted in Hamas's, you know, breakthrough into Israel, right? And they're thinking about how they're going to resuscitate, the, you know, what, what's going on there. So that's in the back. But still, they've come together in this moment, right? Now you look at, you know, it's just, you look at this moment, there was, for example, the hope that the couple of dozen Republicans or more who are part of what's it called, the Common Sense Coalition, there, there's some group of kind of so. more moderate Democrats, more moderate Republicans who have a kind of, I can't remember, this Common Sense or Pragmatist or whatever it's called, and some hope that somehow um, if one of them put themselves forward, uh, the Republican, right, that maybe the Democrats might have said, okay, we can form something where the Democrats will support a Republican speaker from the center who does not have the support of the rest of the Republican body and to try to have some centrist governance, right? Now, that could have been also risky politically for the Democrats to do that, to give the, empower the Republicans to actually accomplish some real reforms in the Republican. But, you know, it, that's the type of thing. Hakeem Jeffries, you know, the Speaker of the House, um, was supporting it. The other thing, of course, is you see, I mean, Nancy Pelosi, you know, may go down in history as the most or one of the top three most effective speakers of the House in American history. The fact that she and Chuck Schumer and and Biden, our administration last year, were able to pass more monumental legislation than has happened since the mid-1960s, that the stuff involving climate change, the stuff involving infrastructure building, the stuff involving um, new technology, investing in new technology, right? I mean, the, the whole range of things, you know, the, the, the poorly named Inflation Reduction Act, but which it really, you know, America's economy has been thriving in a way much more than any place else, right? And the fact that they were able to get that through while it was essentially a 50-50 tie in the Senate and only a narrow lead in the House, Right. And a president who was not all that popular was a monumental political accomplishment. Now, secondly, the fact that the vast majority of Americans don't know this happened. Right. Yeah. Right. right? I mean, is also just like and because media is so segregated and so segmented these days that it's just not getting through the barrier. And that, you know, that Republican politicians who voted against 
this funding for, you know, the new, you know, uh, you know, um, alternative energy projects, which is mostly going to red states. And now they're claiming credit for it, even though they voted against it. I mean, this is kind of hypocrisy. So it shows that effective political leadership is possible. Right. I mean, the Democrats used to be torn in some ways like the Republicans, although never with this level of fundamental extremism that's going on now. So you hope for some kind of breakthrough that could cause this to happen again. Um, But I don't know what it's going to take. And meanwhile, the threats of serious violence breaking out in America, the fact the routineness with which people, politicians, we talk about getting death threats. The fact that Republicans who might think of allying with Democrats have to worry about the safety of themselves and their children. Right. I mean, you know, we're living in a world we haven't lived in for not in our life, not even my lifetime. Um, You know, the fact that Donald Trump would have been looked upon with contempt by virtually every former president in American history. Right. But that nonetheless, he could still get elected president again. Yeah. Um, You know, I don't know. I I don't want to I don't sound too down or depressed here. but you know, Um, Yeah. There's a lot of ways it could go, but, you know, I think a big part of it is trying to sort of break through those bubbles. We talked, you talked about how these things have happened, but the message hasn't gotten through. And a a lot of that is because the way that we're fed media these days is through our own little bubbles, whether that's in social media or, you know, the news, the news outlets that we subscribe to and things like that. So, um, I just, I I wish I knew the answer for how you break through those additional barriers that have popped up. I mean, remember also, it's not as if we live, I mean, unlike countries like China or to some extent Russia or others, where the government makes a serious effort to limit access to media. In the United States, everybody has the ability to say, I want to get my media from diverse sources. I mean, like I have, you know, I'm, I'm educated. I have the apps for you know, the New York Times, the Washington Post and the Wall Street Journal and The Economist and Fox News and, you know, uh, you know, a whole bunch of others, you know, uh, you know, on my phone. And I look at this spectrum of stuff, right, to yeah. see what people are saying, you know, but for most young people and many others, it's social media with all their algorithms. Right. It's, you know, and then you're being fed things and it's not a lot of it's not being fact checked and a lot of it can now be made up. And a lot of it is rushed out there without any kind of editing or thoughtfulness. Um, you know, so, so uh, you know, I mean, it, it's, uh, you know, people do have the choice. I mean, we are being fed it, but we, every one of us has the ability or capacity to look more broadly. But we also know that the way human beings are wired, and we know that these algorithms play into the way that human beings are wired. And we know that, you know, encountering contrary political viewpoints is oftentimes physically and emotionally, emotionally uncomfortable for us. So, you know, I don't spend that much time on the Fox app because I can't stand looking at it, but I force myself to look at it occasionally to see what they're saying. You know, I don't like the Wall Street Journal. You know, I mean, their editorial page, it's pretty terrible at times, but, you know, I still want to yeah. see what it is they're saying. Right. So it's yeah. being willing and open to that sort of stuff. It's why, of course, when you see people on the left, you know, basically fighting against free speech. And having these types of things, you know, these mandatory, I mean, the type of, you know, statements that people have to sign in order to get a job, you know, speakers they disagree with being, you know, shouted down. You always just thought that's the kind of thing that right wing campuses do. But now you have left wingers doing that as well. I mean, so, you know, it's it's that's kind of soul crushing as well. And, of course, self-defeating, self-defeating. Yeah, well, you know, we're 
we're in the mess that we're in. We're going to find our way out of it as best we can. Um, you know, I look forward to eventually having uh, a traditional interview with you and talking about your work in drug policy and how our works cross over. But, you know, just to start wrapping it up, you know, you talked about what could potentially happen as things calm down uh, in the Middle East. You know, do you see that happening anytime soon? Um. It, it's it's hard to say. I mean, first, well, well ha the fact that Israel has a wartime coalition government right now opens up some types of dialogue and conversations um, that could prove productive. That So that's helpful. I think the fact that Hamas engaged in this hyper, you know, just vicious, barbaric, nihilistic action um, uh, you know, it's put the more responsible Arab governments in a tricky place right now that maybe, um, but I think, you know, the potential down, I mean, if you want to, the person who's most thoughtful about all this stuff is really Thomas Friedman because he's, you know, he got, he got a star. I think, I think he used to speak both Arabic and Hebrew back in the day, 40 years ago when he won those Pulitzer Prizes. And, and, you know, I mean, he's been very overt that for him, as a Zionist and as an American Jew who loves Israel, um, for him, the single greatest priority, this is before the war, war broke out, was to, to basically delegitimize and get the Israeli fascist Smat Richard Ben Gavir out of the government. Yeah. That that is not the type of Israel that any of us who would call ourselves Zionists yes. in any way have supported. And it was not those guys who let, who played leadership roles in the in the Zionist movement, which is very much a left wing yes. movement, you know, in the late 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 twentieth late nineteenth and early twentieth century, right? So so that's a pivotal thing. And I think reading what he's been writing about this stuff is is really valuable. Um, and helpful on this stuff. And and he's always trying to be the optimist, trying to see, even he's very bleak about what's going on now, trying to think how this could lead to a, you know, a, a better situation. Because if, in fact, if Israel could reach some sort of accommodation with the Palestinians, right? And there's, if Gaza could be turned into a truly, into a territory that was essentially unarmed, and therefore could be enabled to, you know, because, you know, the Palestinians were oftentimes known as the Jews among the Arabs, right? I mean, they were the ones who are oftentimes intellectually and the entrepreneurship and the intelli you know, intellectual thing. You know, I mean, Gaza has some of that potential. And, and also the same thing with the Palestinians in the West Bank, right? And, and that if there could be some accommodation that involves land swaps between, you know, the, you know, kind of nascent, Palestinian political entity, a Palestinian quasi-state, they can eventually look forward to some form of statehood with a, you know, a non, basically a non-armed state so that the, that Israel could be reassured in that front and where there might even be territorial swaps if that work between parts of Israel that are, you know, have where the majority of Arabs live and between some of the areas of the West Bank where the settlers have gone. There's, if you look at that, and then if you look at Israel so invested in having a partnership with Saudi Arabia, and if Saudi Arabia could get find ways to get behind something like that as well, and where a substantial part of the Israeli security establishment would say this works, this ensures our security, you'll still have Iran trying to sabotage it. You'll still have other players out there. You'll still have the fact that the Arab masses, you know, you know, are still kind of like, what's going on here? Why are we suddenly, you know, making peace with Jews and this type of stuff, right? But that sense, I mean, that's the you know, Hail Mary shot about, I think, 
where we need to be, you know, headed there. I mean, you know, down the road, this could be a world in which you have a, um, you know, a kind of nascent, you know, Palestinian state in this territory, whether it's combined with Gaza or not, right? And in which you might even have hundreds of thousands of Jews living there, right? Um, you know, either as Israeli citizens living in this Palestinian state or becoming, you know, and who and who are protected in what they want, right? But where you're not asserting state political sovereignty, right? Because remember, when you look at the report that Human Rights Watch put out some years ago, and what they did was they pointed out that this now 56-year occupation of the West Bank does meet the legal definitions of apartheid. That when you have a minority, which is right, living over where one group of people based upon ethnicity, religion, whatever, is entitled to one set of rights and others have to live carrying passes, restricted in, in their movement, et cetera, et cetera, you know, without, you know, with limited right to vote over, you know, that that represents a form of apartheid, according to legal definition. Now, when you think at other organizations like Amnesty and others or all the others describing all of Israel as apartheid state, that's a lie. Because, in fact, there's the, what the, the situation of the Arab minority in Israel, that 20 percent, in no way resembles the situation of apartheid in South Africa. Israel proper outside, in the original 67 borders is not, does not meet the definitions of apartheid, right? You know, Arabs may face discrimination and there are all sorts of problems, but it's also a society in which huge amounts of government funding where they get to vote, where, where just a few years ago, the Arab party was the third biggest party in the, Israel, in the, in the, in the Knesset, in the Israeli parliament, and inconceivable thing in any part of the Arab world, right? So, yep. so you need to, something needs to change in that situation. And the option of, of saying, we're going to engage in ethnic cleansing, right? I mean, I mean, if you combine all the territory, right, of Israel and the West Bank into one political entity, eventually the Jews are no longer a majority. And then what? If it's a democratic state, you don't have a Jewish majority, Jewish majority state. So inconceivable that Israel would ever let it to go that way. Alternatively, you combine the whole thing into one territory and the Arabs don't get to have the same vote. Right. In which case the whole state now begins to qualify as an apartheid state. The third possibility is you gain an ethnic cleansing and you expel you know, a huge portion of, of, of the of the non-Jewish population from the West Bank. Well, you know, one can say, hey, go back to post-World War II, and there was mass migrations of tens of millions of people across borders, and they didn't all live in refugee camps for three or four generations. They settled in, and that was that, right? Or you can say half the Jews in Israel came from the Arab world, and they left because of pogroms and being expelled. They were not really part of the Zionist movement, but hey, this is just quid pro quo. Now, that was a, legit, a legitimate argument in terms of the creation of Israel in 1948 and what happened there. But to extend that argument into, into this decade, and to use those arguments to justify the mass expulsion and ethnic cleansing of the Arabs. No, that is not something that any type of moral Jewish dot majority state yes. can engage in. So we need to look at a fourth option, essentially. And that fourth option has to be some type of accommodation. I really enjoy, I encourage people to read, you know, Bernard Avishai, who is an Israeli um, intellectual. He teaches at Dartmouth. Um, you know, he's probably more to the left on some things that, that I would be on some of this stuff, but he writes very thoughtfully. And he kind of has written some pieces about the notion of confederation in which he points out that if you look on the ground, you see, in fact, that Israel and the Palestinian leadership, you know, the Palestinian Authority are actually cooperating extensively on electricity and on taxes and on security and a whole host of things that there's huge movements of people back and forth across that border. I mean, obviously, the movement of the Palestinians in Israel is more restricted, but there's still some 
substantial movements across in this way and labor relations, all this sort of stuff, that that provides a base upon which one can begin to build something more substantial. Now, the tragedy of Hamas taking over in in Gaza in 2006 and ruling that in a dictatorship where no dissent is tolerated, where there are no elections, where there is very little in the way of free press, where people can be, you know, I mean, it's it's a pretty horrific government, which is, you know, the same attending to the social welfare of the Arabs in Gaza, which helped get them elected against the corrupt Fatah government in 2006. It's not as if they're paying attention to that stuff in, in, in anything like the same way now. So that was the tragedy of Hamas. If somehow Hamas is obliterated and if somehow a more moderate leadership can emerge in Gaza, that no matter their bitterness at whatever Israel is going to be doing and going to be doing in the coming weeks, you know, can somehow move beyond that, then that's a lot of ifs. But ultimately, that's the direction things need to move into some sort of arrangement that, you know, where there is security and peace. I mean, I think the overall sort of theme and takeaway for me on this conversation for the audience is, sort of that large moderate center needs to come together as much as possible and be louder than the extremists. And hopefully we can inch toward peace. And um, yeah, I mean, I really appreciate your time. Appreciate you, you know, speaking about this topic that you haven't spoken on publicly in in a very long time. Uh, We need to be louder than the extremists and we need to inch towards peace as best we can. And we need to really bond together. Those of us that believe that People should be able to live the life they want to live peacefully. Um, And, you know, I just I really thank you for coming on and talking about this, you know, a topic you haven't spoken on publicly in a long time. Um, It was really fascinating to hear your perspective. And um, I think it'll be enriching to our listeners. Thank you for having me on. I look forward to our next conversation. Okay. Yeah. Likewise. Okay. Take care. Thanks for listening to this episode of People Are the Answer. If you enjoyed the episode, share it with friends and reviews or subscriptions on your favorite platforms go a long way to help the show grow. I want to share these incredible people and their remarkable work with as many others as possible. Thanks for your support. For more, go to peoplearetheanswer.com.